Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must-listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What Was That Like contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is the show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. In an ideal world, children should be able to trust their parents. After all, it's the grown-ups in the family who are responsible for the kids. No child should ever have to worry about safety when mom and dad are around for protection in an ideal world. That's the world Ross thought he was living in when he was eight years old with his older brother, Ryan, who was 10. They were happy kids with no reason to be afraid. Until one night at their home in Charlotte, North Carolina, when his mother told his father she wanted a divorce. That's when something snapped in Ross's dad's mind, and he got a gun and forever changed the history of their family. Ross is 21 now, and he's permanently blind, and he's amazing. He's currently at the Colorado Springs Olympic and Paralympic Training Center where he's training to swim in the summer 2020 Paralympics in Tokyo. We talked about a lot of things. What happened that night? How he and his mother have adapted? How difficult it was to learn Braille? Getting his first guide dog? How he's able to play computer video games? Why he sometimes wears earplugs? And how he can swim competitively without being able to see? Ross has plans for a career in software engineering, and there's no doubt in my mind that he'll meet that challenge. If you'd like to contact him, you can email Ross at rossaminer at gmail.com. On the show notes for this episode, I'll have links to all of his socials as well as his popular YouTube channel. And after you listen to this episode, be sure and go check out his XMO speech, and you'll see how inspiring it is. All of those links are at whatwasthatlike.com slash 35. And if you'd like to join the others who support this podcast for as little as $1 a month, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And now, please enjoy my rather wide-ranging conversation with Ross. What do you remember about your childhood before this happened? I honestly remember a lot about my childhood. I mean... I guess there's several distinct memories I have from way back, even when I was like three or four. Um, but kind of my childhood is definitely like the, the fond, fond part of my life. Not that my life isn't good now. My life is great, but I, I kind of feel like we all look back on our childhood with a bit of nostalgia, but I kind of feel like that's a little bit more amplified for me because that was when I could see. But I was born in Virginia Beach, Virginia, 1998 and I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina with my family when I was three, I think in maybe like 2000, 2001. And I kind of just lived my life as I guess just a normal, I, I guess I lived my life as the most like clear cut normal kid you could imagine. Like I had a friend, I had a dog, I had a brother, two parents. 
I went to a great school. I had lots of friends, went outside and played, played video games, literally a normal kid. So sounds like a Norman Rockwell painting yeah. sort of <laughs> Yeah, like other than the video games. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. And so back when I was younger, I, I was more of the, uh, the indoor type. I was kind of more, uh, reserved, passive, kind of that. And my brother was a lot like my dad. And he was like, he liked going outside a lot, like building tree houses with his friends, like uh, just hanging out in the woods. So he was outdoors and I was an indoor kind of person. And, and your brother was older than you, right? Yeah. My brother Ryan was two years older than me. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, as far as like an overview of my childhood, definitely like carbon copy, normal kid. <laughs> Leading up to this, when you were, I mean, this, what we're going to talk about happened when you were eight. Was there any kind of history of violence or abuse or anything like that? No, none at all. From my perspective, you know, as a kid, I had no idea that anything was going on whatsoever. From my mom's perspective, I mean, like, I I can't, I can't exactly speak for her because I mean, I'm sure it's a very complicated situation, but I mean, yeah, my, my dad wasn't abusive, but he was manipulative he was like controlling with money he you know like after everything happened he was suspected of being a narcissist and by extension possibly a sociopath so no i had no idea anything was going on um and then my mom my mom kind of did everything she could to keep what was going on away from us so yeah like he wasn't abusive at all like he never hit my mom he was just very uh, manipulative, manipulative person. So he may have had some type of uh, mental illness then you think it, yeah, it's likely. Um, but you know, it's like mental illness and everything that really started to be like focused on, I don't know, like 2010 and up, you know, like before then, like gun violence, mental illness, they weren't really like hot, hot topics at the time. So I don't think, I don't think while he was alive that he, when got help for anything because you know it's just it, it wasn't in the front of people's minds at the time do you remember anything from the night that it happened um I'm, I'm gonna overall say no i don't remember anything but i was recently or not too recently but i had a like a tv show episode on investigation discovery a few months ago and um I was watching it and like it, it's, it really stirred up some memories about like that night. Cause before, you know, I, I went to bed blind and, or I mean, I went to bed sighted and I literally woke up in the hospital bed blind, you know, like I didn't remember anything. So this TV show you were watching was about your story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so basically what happened that night, uh, or I guess <laughs> if you want to be technical, it was like, seven in the morning but i was asleep and my mom was downstairs on the computer and this and ryan was asleep too yeah yeah ryan was asleep as well and my dad they there were a lot of strange details around what happened that i think are worth mentioning now that i i'm a bit older and i understand them a bit more but my dad never drank that much i mean he would have a beer or two but he mainly drank socially well 
in the morning, my mom came downstairs and there's just a bunch of like liquor bottles empty on the counter. And so she's in the office and my dad comes in. And by then she had already told him that, you know, she wanted a divorce. And so, you know, she was like, or he was like, please grace, like, don't leave me. And she told him, Mark, we're going to get you help, you know, cause obviously about the whole alcohol. So he went upstairs and he went into, I guess they had a safe in their closet and he pulled out the 22 revolver. And so he went into my room first and shot me in my sleep when my mom was downstairs. And so he shot me in my sleep and she comes upstairs because she heard what happened. And while she's checking on me, he goes and shoots my brother in his sleep. And then after that, she goes into the hallway or no, she goes into Ryan's room because, you know, she heard the gunshot from there and she sees my dad and, you know, she asks him like, why'd you do this? And if I remember correctly, he just like started like screaming, like, I don't know. I don't know. And that's, I obviously wasn't conscious for that, but that's directly from what my mom said happened. And so then she runs back to check on me because I'm yelling for her. And I'm going to cut from the story because when I was watching that investigation discovery episode, like, that's the part that really like started stirring up memories for me because I almost feel like way in the back of my mind that I, I remember like, you know, me yelling for my mom and like my mom coming in and telling me that like, it's going to be okay. And like cupping her hand over my right eye. Cause my right eye or no, sorry, my left eye, my left eye is the one that got taken out. So she's calling nine one one and I'm in, I'm in my bed yelling for her. And then my brother, my brother didn't respond. Like he was just shot. And then he didn't wake up because the bullet went into his brain. Lucky for us, our next door neighbor happened to be a police officer. So he was able to kind of call ahead and clear the highways for us. So we could get to the hospital. And so I believe my dad died in the ambulance while my brother died the next day. And so I was rushed to the hospital and my left eye had to be removed. So when I was shot, I was on my side in bed. And so my dad shot me in the right or my right temple. And so the bullet went through my head and it missed my right eye. It went through my nasal cavity and then it um, took out my left eye and exited out my left temple into my left hand. And so my right eye, my right eye wasn't damaged at all, but the retina and optic nerve were severed. So that's what's causing uh, my blindness in my right eye. So it's still a real eye. It's still, I can still move it around. I just can't see out of it because the, the nerves are severed. And then my left eye was just too damaged to even save. So they took that out and that's what's causing the blindness in my left eye. As for my brain, the bullet completely missed my brain. It didn't touch it at all. And then since it went through my sinuses, I am no longer able to smell either. And then, yeah, it exited out into the palm of my left hand. Um, 
So you were you were sleeping with your head on your hand. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and yeah, the reason why I explain that is because some people don't understand. They're like, "Oh, well, how did the bullet go from your left temple to your hand?" Yeah, I was sleeping with my head on my hand, and that's how that all happened. And so, yeah, you know, I went to bedside and woke up in the hospital bed blind, and it was kind of it's kind of like how do I describe it? It was almost like I was drifting in and out of consciousness. I don't know if that was actually what I was doing. But, you know, like at one part, I remember in being in a hospital bed, like going up an elevator. And then another part, I remember asking a nurse for a glass of water. And then then I remember waking up and actually like being conscious, actually like understanding that I was awake. Like I woke up from a nap or something, you know, before it was kind of like a bunch of flashes. Well, you're probably on pain medication. too. Yeah, I, I, I probably pain. was. Um, again, I don't know the exact chronological order of how everything happened but yeah my left eye was removed and i was in the hospital for about five weeks recovering who told you what happened or how did you find out uh my mom told me she was the one who i guess when she saw that i was awake like she came over and told me what happened you know she my mom's always done her best to uh be honest with me um and so like she just told me what happened. She told me the, how my dad had shot me and shot Ryan and that they were gone. And I, I guess this must've been like a couple days after my brother died. Cause you know, my mom got to go say goodbye to him, but I must've been in surgery. So like, this was all after the fact, you know? So yeah, she just told me that I was blind and I asked her if I'd be, ever be able to see again. And she said no. And so it was like, I don't know. I, I kind of just sat there or I guess I kind of just laid there for who knows how long and just kind of processed it. Um, you know, I always tell people that there's, you know, like, I don't know, like in the movies when someone's given horrible news, like you expect them to like flash out or like start crying or whatever. But it's like really when you receive news like that, it's like there's no proper way to respond to it, especially as a kid. And I don't think as a kid, I really was fully aware of the ramifications of being blind in the sighted world, you know? So yeah, that's, that's kind of how she told me. I'm just, I'm just trying to think as, for, for an eight year old boy all at one time, you've just lost your brother and you've lost your father and you've lost your sight. Yeah. A- any one of those things would be just overwhelming. To have all three of them told at the same time, such it's like your whole world is just completely flipped upside down. Yeah, and people always ask me, they go, I mean, like, you must be so strong. Like, how do you cope with this? Well, things aren't always clear cut. Yeah, like, things aren't always clear cut. You know, if I were my age now and then everything happened to me, that's a totally different story because I had, like, 20, 21 years to know my, know my family, my brother, my father, my mother, you know, I would feel a lot more betrayed if my father did something like that to me now, rather than if I was eight, where like, I've, I've only been on the earth for eight years. So it's like, I don't have, it's not like I have a huge understanding of the complexities of life or nature of right and wrong, you know? So when you're a kid, you only think about like the next day. And so that's pretty much what I did. 
after I went blind is just kind of live my life day to day. And even then, it's not like I did all that by myself. Like I had my mom supporting me. I had all my friends and family supporting me. You know, like some people don't get that opportunity. And I think that's what makes the difference in how I uh, kind of dealt with everything, you know? Yeah. As I was doing some research for this and, and reading some articles and things, to me, it sounds like your mom is just incredible. Yeah. Like she's, she's always been my greatest advocate, like my main supporter. She's, she's been strong for me. I mean, like she's, she's struggled immensely since, you know, the loss of her, her first son and, you know, her husband. I mean, like, I I guess that's kind of what I mean in the sense that I was eight. I didn't really know what it meant. Well, my mom was like, well, great. My only son is blind and, I don't know how to raise a blind kid. Like, I don't know how he's going to live in the world. Cause kind of like most people who aren't familiar with disabilities, they think that like, if you have a disability, like your life is awful and like, you won't, you may not be able to do as much as a sighted person. And so back then my mom was probably thinking those kind of thoughts. So like, think about how desperate or like panic she must've been because of that. And now put that into context and see how she's raised me, you know, like, she's done a great job, but like I said, like she's, she's struggled with depression and anxiety and PTSD, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards after what happened to her. So as you were, as you were just processing this, aside from the loss of your half of your family, how were you thinking about how you would go forward, not being able to see, I mean, were you thinking, how am I going to go to school? How am I going to no. even just yeah. walk around? None no, of like, that. yeah, none of that. Cause I, yeah, like th- those are the kind of questions that, yeah, you ask when you get older, like when you're a kid, I think we all forget that. Like we don't have those kind of critical thinking skills. So for me, I was like, okay, well, this is it. I, I got to keep going. And looking back now, like, I don't know if s- some part of me realized this at the time, but now that I think about it, I think, okay, what was I going to do? Either live my life blind or just give up. You know, like I was only eight years old. I had, I, I was, I had so much, I, I I was only eight years old. I had so much energy and so much more to live for. I feel like even I knew that, you know, I'm not just going to give up the rest of my life just because I'm blind. Like Right. Right. Yeah. I can see that. Or, or just the logic of a kid thinking, well, I've got my mom. She'll hand, she'll take care of things. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what she did. Like it growing up. I mean, there were so many obstacles that my mom had to hurdle that I, I wasn't even aware of until I actually grew up, you know, how much you said you were in the hospital for five weeks. Yeah. Did you, did you just go back to school then? Or how did that take place? Or how did you get back to school? Well, since all this happened in June, I was able to start school back up. You know, I, everything happened at the end of second grade. So I was able to start up third grade just fine. But the whole issue came in with, how's I going to read? How's I going to write? How's I going to navigate? And so my mom, you know, like most States um, offer or most States slash public schools offer um, resources for people with disabilities. Well, it's not like she knew that at the time. So she had to decide, okay, does Ross go back to St. Matt's 
or does he go St. Matt's? Sorry, St. Matt's was uh, the private school that I went to at the time. Or does he change schools? Well, she wanted to keep me in uh, uh, the school I went to before because she figured I'd be most familiar with all my friends. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature, and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Well, the thing is, is that all of these government slash public school amenities or services that you would get, um, you would only get if you were going to a public school. And so long story short, there is this huge debate, not debate, but my mom took the school district to due process because they wanted to send me to a public school while my mom and my uh, therapist at the time were arguing to send me back to private school because, you know, of all my friends and just me being more familiar with all my friends there. 
But if we went to pub or if we went to private school, then the public school wouldn't pay for any of my canes or my technology or like a teacher to teach me Braille. None of that. They wouldn't pay for any of that. Well, despite all that, my mom still kept me in a private school and we had a bunch of fundraisers to raise money for um, obviously my medical bills. But then she used a lot of that money to also pay for the resources that I need. Um, but stuff like that, that you privately contract is really expensive. So to have someone, ha- she would have to hire someone to teach me how to use a cane and she would have to hire someone to teach me how to read and write Braille. And that costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that she wouldn't have been able to afford if we didn't have the, the support of the community. So we ended up taking them to due process. We won the case, but by then we had moved down to Florida because we wanted to we wanted to move down to Florida because we won the case, but we couldn't afford the private school eventually. And so I had to go to public school. And while in public school, I had a really difficult time making friends because I had lived my I had spent my whole life going to this school with going to this elementary school with all my friends. And now I'm being placed at a public school in the fourth grade, completely blind and no friends. Yeah. You went in not knowing anyone. Yeah. I went in not knowing anyone. And so in seventh grade, we had decided to move to Florida and enroll me in the Florida school for the deaf and blind. And from there I, uh, I thrived, you know, I had a lot of friends there. It was great. Like it was great being able to relate to people. Um, with my same disability. But at the same time, around 10th grade, I decided I wanted to leave FSDB or Florida School for the Deaf and Blind um, because I've always been kind of, I want to say rebellious, not in the slightest, but just like argumentative, like strong-willed, like that kind of person. Um, So there were a lot of different rules at Florida school for the deaf and blind that were meant to protect the kids, but really restricted us beyond belief. Like we didn't have a lot of freedom, you know, like we had bars on our windows, you know, we wouldn't, we weren't allowed to leave campus unless it were this time and this time, which is great. But then they would do things like, ration our our food meals and since it was like a public school technically you know they they would feed me the food of like someone who was half my size and who was half my body like so i was being malnourished while i was on the swim team and they didn't offer any advanced classes and the I forgot to mention that it was a boarding school. So like I would commute back home every weekend. And so the trips were getting tedious. It just, it sounds like it wasn't a really a good fit. Yeah. It wasn't a good fit. Like it was for, I needed it for a while, but I, I, I outgrew it pretty quickly. And so that's when we found a scholarship that would allow me to go to a school of my choice. And then the scholarship would determine how much money I needed to uh, succeed in that school. And then they would, award me that money. And so I applied for it and I got it and I moved back to Jacksonville where we were living at the time. And I went back to private school. And so private high school, that was really where I kind of had a 
I, I just had the most growth and development in like my life in high school, just because like one of my biggest struggles when uh, I went blind was, you know, you would think being blind, like actually not being able to see would be the hardest part of being blind. But the hardest part of being blind for me is interacting with people because it's just a whole nother level. It's it's just so dynamic and there's so many different variables to it. That's definitely, that's something that I definitely want to get into. Yeah. To ask you, you know, about as far as your interaction with, with sighted people and, and things like that. So we, yeah, we'll definitely get to that. Yeah. Have you, during this time or since then, have you experienced depression at all? Yes. Yeah. As a result of uh, everything that happened. Yeah. I've, I've struggled with depression and PTSD, but honestly, like not to the level that my mom has, like my mom has really struggled with it. While I've, I have kind of just, I went to a psychiatrist, they prescribed me medicine and I was good to go. And I think that's kind of the difference of being asleep while everything happened versus actually like living it, you know? Um, it was a lot more traumatic for my mom than it was for me. I can imagine. She, I mean, she witnessed it. Yeah, for sure. I just, it, it really is hard for me to imagine how she could see all that happen and just not, just not faint or yeah. crazy or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I mean, she said that like she, she, she remembers the event, but at the same time, like it's all kind of blurry to her because it happened so fast. And like the brain has a way of like blocking out traumatic incidences or like, experiences. So yeah, like definitely difficult. Right. So you went back the, the school that you went back to in Jacksonville, is that, is it called Bishop Snyder? Yeah. Bishop Snyder is where I went to. And that's where you graduated high school. Yep. That's where I graduated high school, finished out the rest of my high school there. How did your friends and your classmates, how do they handle uh, interacting with you when you were in school? You would think that the hardest thing about being blind is, you know, not being able to see, worrying about how to get around and stuff like that. But it's really, in my opinion, the social interaction, just because there's, it's just so much more complex than we really give the time to think about. Because on the side of like the sighted person, you know, they're like, oh, I've never met a blind person before. Like, how do I talk to them? On my side, they're not initiating conversation with me. Therefore, I think that I'm doing something wrong and I can't see their facial expressions to see how they're looking at me. So what if I'm looking, what if I am wearing something weird or what if I smell bad? Because I can't even smell myself, you know, all reasonable uh, concerns to have as a high schooler in high school. So it, it made it really difficult to uh, interact with people around me and to relate with them, to be honest, because here everyone was on social media, Snapchat, Instagram, whatnot, and talking about like, oh, I drove here, I drove there, or I watched this, I watched that, or like basically stuff I couldn't relate to. Like talk, They're talking about all the trivial things while me as like a high schooler, I had all this happen to me and no one really understood it. You know, it's not, it's not like, you know, when I make a friend, I can just go, Oh, Hey, I was shop on my father. And that's why I'm blind. You know, like it makes people uncomfortable, stuff like that. Um, so it made it really difficult. So did the, did they know the story then? Or yeah, I, yeah, I would tell kid and eventually it got around. Everyone knew 
or I want to say everyone knew, but a lot of people knew. A lot of people who were in my grade knew. Yeah, as soon as you hear that, that's not the kind of thing you just hear it and forget about it. You got to yeah. tell somebody. Yeah, and so as a result of this, you know, I I grew really bitter and depressed. Like, you know, I mentioned that I had depression, but really, like, a lot of it was caused by everything in high school, just because I was getting, you know, more and more depressed over not being able to make friends. And back in high school, it didn't help that the fact that I thought people were ignoring me for some reason, or that I thought I was the problem. And so, you know, I, I grew bitter, depressed and angry. And looking back now, you know, it's, it wasn't entirely my fault. You know, all people have to do, I guess, is just approach me and say hi to me and just give me a chance to actually be myself to not be seen as the blind person. So yeah, you could pin the blame on everyone else, but at the same time, I could have gone and asserted myself and been like, Hey, I'm blind, but get over it. Like, this is me. Let's be friends or get to know me, please. You know, I could have done that, but I didn't, I, I wanted everything handed to me. Well, and that's difficult for some people too. I mean, you cited people, if you're an introvert or yeah, outgoing like that, it, it is difficult. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so that was mainly what I struggled with in high school and kind of the, the whole, the whole issue kind of came to a head my senior year. And that was, you know, when I gave my speech at Exmo, I'm not sure if you want to talk about that or not, but yeah, kind of after that was really when people actually saw me for who I was. Yeah. And we will, I, I will have a link to that because that was kind of the first time you had told your story out loud, right? That Oh, that was specifically the very first time I had told my story out loud. Like that, because before that, it was really hard for me to say because I wasn't in denial, but I just had so many pent up emotions over what had happened to me and everything that was happening to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I watched that video and it's just incredible. I mean, you, you have a natural gift for speaking. I can, I'm sure other people have told you that as well. Yeah. And uh, so I'll put a link to that so people can watch that boy for being the first time. And obviously you weren't using it. You weren't using any notes. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no, that, that speech was honestly was from the heart, like straight from the heart. Oh, I could tell. Yeah. yeah. And, and it touched the people in that room. How yeah. many people were you speaking to in that room? Oh, maybe like 40 or 50. Yeah. Okay. But man, you, you had that room, you had their attention and yeah. Wow. That's uh could you tell that even though you couldn't see their faces, I know with your other senses, could you tell that, wow, these people are really listening to me? Yeah, I definitely like, I mean, I definitely heard like people sniffling and whatnot, but like in the moment, honestly, in the moment, it, none of that was really on my mind. I, I just wanted so desperately to kind of convey to anyone that was listening, like how I was feeling like to kind of reach out somehow to someone that like, I, I just needed a friend, you know? And so, yeah, I, I could tell that people were upset, but wasn't on my mind until afterward when like everyone was crying. I was like, Oh geez, like, did I do something wrong? Like <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah. No, you did something really right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to ask you how your other senses 
have improved? Because you always hear that when somebody goes blind, the other senses uh, somehow become drastically more in tune. But one thing I was surprised in something you said, maybe it was on your YouTube channel, Mm -hmm. that you actually had to wear earplugs after oh, yeah. after you lost your sight. Can you talk about that, What how that worked? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, they do say if you lose a sense, like your others get better. I I honestly don't know if that's true. I You'd think I'd be curious enough to do it, to, re, to do research on it, but eh, I got other things to worry about. Like, my, <laughs> my senses are, are here. That's all I have to be grateful for. But, you know, after I went blind, like, yeah, I kind of developed a mistrust of adults. But then I also developed like really sensitive ears. I don't, why is it? I don't know that it, why did I de- develop sensitive ears? Like, do you think of it as in like, oh, your brain knows that you have no sight. So it's going to like pump up the power on the ears. I don't know if that's how it works or if because I had to use my hearing much, much more all the su- all of a sudden that it was just very overwhelming. Uh, you know, I don't know. But the fact is, yeah, I had to wear earplugs. For, at first, I had to wear earplugs everywhere I went. And then I had to wear them when things got loud. Um, but even, even now, you know, these days, like, I still keep earplugs with me just because loud concerts or concerts, they hurt my ears or just loud noises in general hurt my ears. But then I also keep the earplugs... These days, not because like I'm scared of the sound or even because like they some sounds hurt my ears, but mainly because like I like to I want to preserve my hearing so I don't lose it when I'm older and, you know, I'm deaf and blind. That's very smart because now that you depend on your hearing so much. Yeah, I depend on I can't I can't risk losing it. Right. How would you rate the difficulty of learning to read Braille? (laughs) Uh, very difficult. Very, 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 very difficult. <laughs> Braille is not just like, this means A, this means B, this means C. It's like, Braille is like, this means C, or this means the word can, or this means the letter or the number three, or this means a colon, or this means a dash, or this means the letter C-O-M. Like, that's how complicated it can be. So one thing can mean all of those things? All of those things. Yes. So. Okay. All, I'm lost now. <laughs> yeah. And so whenever I have friends say, oh, you should teach me Braille. I'm just like, I, I'm not going to force that upon you because it, it's difficult. Braille is very difficult because there's, there's a language for reading uh, on paper. There's a language for reading math. And then technically there's a language for reading on computers, but that's more of semantics. But yeah, like there's a different language for reading and then there's a different language for actually reading math. And that's called Nemeth. And that's a whole other code of Braille. So yeah, I would say it's really difficult. And that was just reading. Writing, writing is a lot more easier because you you just use like a, it's called a Braille writer. And it looks like a really old fashioned typewriter, except the keys are just meant for Braille. But it's still the same. You roll in the paper as a bell and stuff like that. And you roll out the paper and the braille's on it. So, and for using a computer, I assume it's just, you have everything on the screen is just turned into audio. Yes. And you know, fun fact right now, I'm a software engineering major in college, but when I was a kid, my mom, you know, had been told by several people, she's, they were like, Hey, look, 
technology is the future. Like you need to get your kid learning how to use a computer. It's possible. And so my mom tried, but I fought her like tooth and nail at every turn that I did not want to use a computer. It wasn't until maybe, let's see, it probably wasn't until ninth grade I started really diving into computers. And it wasn't until like 11th or 12th I actually was really, like I actually started my passion for computers. And yeah, so that that road was just another another of the handful of things I had to learn when going blind. And honestly, like looking back, it wasn't me learning how to use a computer as a blind person. It was just me learning how to use a computer, really. Because like when you're sighted, you know, it's like, oh, big red button, press that. Or, oh, I need to click on this icon to launch this program. You know, like, oh, there's a lot more visual cues. So when you're using a screen reading software on a computer, you have to read all the text. Because a lot, like I said, a lot of text is associated with a picture. So while you're clicking on icon, I have to read it, the text and then click on that. And so I didn't know what like, I'm trying to think of an example. Like I didn't know what a start menu was, or I didn't know what a task manager was. And so I had to relearn all of, I guess the technical terms of what everything was while sighted people just go control, delete. And, you know, do you see what I'm saying? So that was the more difficult part was actually learning how to use a computer because when you're blind, you're forced to learn all of the key, all the keyboard commands for the screen reading software, as well as the actual computer, because you can't use a mouse. Yeah, I could definitely see that. But yeah, and you're really into video games as well, right? Oh yeah, like video games. You know, like I said, my brother was the outdoor type. I was the inside video game type. I, I'm not a gamer myself, but as I can see people playing games, it's it looks like everything is visual. You know, yeah. if you're running through a room or running across a field looking for people to shoot or whatever you're doing, uh, how, how do you how do you do that if you can't see the screen? See, like that's kind of the whole barrier between like the sighted and blind world. It's not that I as a blind person am different from you as a sighted person. The difference between us is that literally just our senses, but it it causes us to look at the world in a completely different way. Okay. So when you're watching a video game, all you're seeing is the video, but the audio, if you wore a pair of headphones or I guess how about this? When I wear a pair of headphones, based on how the game is programmed, coded, created, developed, however you want to say, um, I'm able to hear where the audio is coming from. I'm able to hear if it's in front of me, behind me, to the left or to the right. And it goes the same with movies. If you if you wear a pair of headphones when you listen to movies, like they design the audio spatially so you can hear where everything is coming from. And so through that, that's how I've, I've learned to play video games. And another thing is just memorizing all the menus and sounds. You know, like I have to memorize all the menus, but then I also have to memorize all the sounds similar to people, how, how people memorize like all the visual cues. I have to remember, okay, that sound does this, that sound does that. So therefore this does that, stuff like that. So it's, it's just a whole different process, you know. Can you tell us about the experience of getting your first guide dog? Yeah, for sure. Um, 
so her name, my god dog's name is Dixie. She's a black lab. And it's actually her birthday, I think, like, next week, I want to say. Um, Happy birthday, Dixie. Yeah, right? <laughs> How old is she going to be? She's going to be five. Okay. Um, I think her birthday's on the third. I'd have to check her papers. But, you know, I was born sighted walked around with my eyes and then I go blind, learn how to use a cane. And then now when I turn 18, I'm flying up to uh, New Jersey to get my first guide dog. And that had to be pretty exciting. It, yeah, it was. And back then I, I was as familiar as guide dogs as most people were, you know, like not very familiar. And so when I was flying up there, you know, I was like, Oh, I want a big German shepherd and I want to name it like something badass, something like that. And then I get up there and they're like, this is your guide dog, Dixie. She's a black lab and she's 50 pounds. And I'm like, I didn't fly up here to get this dinky little dog. <laughs> but like, no, like she, the type of dog doesn't matter. The size of the dog doesn't matter. Like she's a really smart dog. Like those dogs go through like rigorous training um, when they're, when they're bred and, trained to be a guide dog. And so when I got Dixie, um, it was like learning how to use a cane all over again, to be honest, because it's completely different from using a cane, you know, like as you'd probably expect, I had like trust issues. I've had trust issues ever since, you know, what happened to me. And so for me to have to put my trust in a literal dog, it was hard for me to do. And sometimes it still is hard for me to do, but like, she's honestly like a, as much as a, a therapy dog to me as she is a seeing eye dog. Yeah. Like it's, it's great having her around, you know, like it's not always people think that when you have a guide dog, you know, it's all sunshines and rainbows. Like sometimes, yeah. Like sometimes she'll make mistakes. Sometimes I'll make mistakes. Sometimes I have to train her to do certain things, but I, I don't know. It helps my responsibility and it just, I like the companionship. I really do. Um, so yeah, like when I f- first met her, like it was just, I remember, there, you know, there's not many moments in your life that you remember, like, really well. But I remember, I was like, you know, like, if I really do end up liking guide dogs, like, I'm going to be getting more and more guide dogs as I get older. But, like, this is my very, very first guide dog. And, yeah, it was just a it was just a really cool experience. Like, they gave her to me. You know, I have that. I don't know if you saw it, but I have that video of me meeting her for the first time. Oh, no, um, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got the whole thing on video. So I have like a whole little montage on my channel of uh, them bringing her up to me, me petting her. And then like I have a few videos of like them showing me the basic commands and like me just training with her and stuff like that. Because, you know, I flew up there for like three weeks because um, it's not like they just give you the dog and then you go. You know, you have there's a lot of a lot of things you guys have to practice. And so, yeah, like they gave her to me and I took her into my room and like the whole point of the first day was literally just spent bonding with your dog. And so the whole, like the whole day I was just playing with Dixie and I was like, wow, like this dog is going to be with me for the next however many years. Like, How long have you had her now? Uh, I got her a little bit before she was two. So I've had her for around four years, maybe three or four. No, three. Yeah. I've had her for three years. Well, yeah. I mean, I have two dogs and I have an, I mean, the the relationship between a human and their pet, especially a dog, in my opinion, yeah. is, is really special. But boy, it's got to be 10 times that with the, uh, oh, the yeah, connection exactly. that you have with Dixie. Yeah. I mean, like sometimes I have to, like if I'm at the pool or something and I have to tie her down while I get in the water or wherever I am, I have to tie her down. 
my girlfriend Sam will just be like, oh, she's watching you like a hawk. Like she won't mm-hmm. leave out of her eyesight because wherever <laughs> I watch, she'll just keep an eye on me. <laughs> well, she's responsible for you. Yeah, That's, exactly. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk. You mentioned the pool. How did you get interested in swimming? I mainly started swimming at first just because I wanted a sport to do. Before I went blind, I did soccer. But then after I went blind, I obviously couldn't do regular soccer anymore. And so when I was at the Florida School for the Deaf and Blind, my mom had convinced me to sign up for the swim team. And so I started in eighth grade. And um, that's pretty much how I got started. And I kind of just swam throughout high school. I didn't really take it that seriously at the time. If if I'm to be honest, I just kind of swam seasonally and just did it to stay active. Well, you eventually became captain of the swim team, right? Yeah. Uh, my senior year uh, at Bishop Snyder, I became captain of the swim team. There's a, if I remember correctly, yeah, there's a guy's captain and a girl's captain. So I was the guy's captain. Well, for for competitive swimming, obviously you have to swim in a lane. Yeah. How do you, do you just do that intuitively or do you ever drift out of your lane or how do you do that? <laughs> there's a lot of different philosophies and techniques, but essentially you kind of just have to wing it. Um, it depends on, it, it varies from stroke to stroke and person to person. But uh, what I usually do is if I'm swimming, I mainly hug one side and try to trail along the lane line or the wall or wherever I am. And same in a race. And then as far as, you know, flipping at the other end, they have people and they hold things called tappers, but ma- basically there's giant poles with like a soft little ball on the end of them. And they'll tap you when you're supposed to flip and push off the wall. So whoever's tapping you knows the exact millisecond so that you know to flip over and push off. Well, you would think. <laughs> you would think. They okay. mess up sometimes? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah, they do. And <laughs> yeah, like this is like a controversial topic among blind people because some blind people feel like there should be more standards as far as tappers. But yeah, as of right now, they literally just like you meet them at the beginning of the day before your race. It's oh, like, hey, okay. You know, I yeah. was picturing this, the tapper would be your coach. So you kind of would have that connection nope. ahead of time. Nope. And unfortunately that's probably my biggest struggle while I'm racing is trusting my tapper to touch me at the right time. Cause not everyone likes to be tapped at the right time. Some, some people like being tapped, Right when they're supposed to flip, some people like being tapped one stroke out, two strokes out. It it varies, and so yeah. Generally, generally, however, I'm not. I don't want to make it seem like it's all bad or anything, but generally, uh, you tend to see the same coaches or or volunteers at the at the meets that you go to. So I usually try to. I kind of at this point have like a group of like five or so people that I know I'll see at a meet, and I'll just go up to them and be like, "Hey, can you tap me for this race?" And be like, oh, I got you. You like it two strokes out, right? I'm like, yep. And <laughs> so. Yeah, that's different from a sighted swimmer because your part of your performance is dependent on this other person. Yeah, a- absolutely. You're 100% correct. And that's a, that's the part that rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right now you're in Colorado at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. Can you explain what are the Paralympics? Okay, so <laughs> thank you for asking me. A lot of people don't know the difference. And the biggest difference, and probably 
one of the only differences is that the Olympics is for people are probably going to get mad at me for saying this, but Olympics is for normal people. And then I'm glad I didn't say that. Yeah. (laughs) And then Paralympics is for people with disabilities, specifically physical disabilities. So let me say right off the bat, a lot of people think that the Paralympics is the special Olympics. Uh, No, the Paralympics is for is professional competitive, just as professional, just as competitive as the Olympic, as the Olympics. The special Olympics is, an organization for people with uh, uh, cognitive disabilities. So they're completely different. And so when I say that the Paralympics and the Olympics are pretty much equal in every way, you know, I'm telling the truth. Like after the Olympics, the Paralympics are a couple weeks after at the same location. It's just unfortunate because the Paralympics don't get as much media attention, but that's like sort of another hot, hot topic issue. But, However, in, I don't want to say the majority, but in many, many other countries, Paralympics is very popular. Most people in the United States probably never heard of the Paralympics, but like over in Europe, it's huge. Like back in London 2012, a lot of my teammates who went, they were telling me, oh man, yeah, like the Paralympic, the Paralympic ceremony was so much bigger than the Olympic ceremony. Like they had Jay-Z and Rihanna there while Olympics had nothing. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of the other way around over there. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I think specifically in the UK, it's the other way around because I believe the first Paralympic competition was held in the UK. Uh, but yeah, generally Paralympics is almost, or if not just as popular as the Olympics in other countries. Yeah, and as far as like how I got into the Paralympics, I let's see. After high school, I was like, okay, that swimming was done. Like going off to college, and my my mom was like, hey, have you heard of the Paralympics? And at the time, it, it's almost a shame. But yeah, at the time, even I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. That sounds dumb. Um, and so she had told me and I was like, eh, I'm on the fence about it. I'll think about it. Well, I didn't decide until like maybe a year and a half after I was done with my high school career to go, okay, yeah, I'll start training for this. Why not? My mom was the main person to actually get me to do it. Like it took a lot of she didn't exactly pressure me. I don't want to put it like that, but like she encouraged me to to really try it out, just give it a go. So I was like, okay. And at the time, I hadn't been in the pool for like a year and a half. And at the time, I was like, okay, well, how am I going to get back into this? We we don't know how any any of this works. Like, how do I go to a meet? How do I become eligible for the Paralympics? Well, we found out that we had to, or that I had to swim in a Paralympic meet to become like i guess part of the circuit or part of the paralympics and so we actually happened to find the meet that was going on in charlotte north carolina you know like where i went blind and so we had to basically train me for that meet and so this was let's see i was this is like august of 2017 i was at university of north florida and so we had to hire a coach but we could really only afford like two days a week so that's what I had to do. And my mom and I, we were like, well, this, you know, we can't afford this. Like, this isn't feasible. You're not going to become successful if you only swim two days a week. And so we looked at other options. And that's where we found the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center up in Colorado. And we found out that I could get all my food and training and housing free. And so she was like, well, 
you know, do you want to do this? And we determined that, you know, they probably wouldn't uh, accept me until I actually had some times under my belt. And so then that's when we flew up to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina a few months later. And that's where I swam my first Paralympic meet. I think I did the 50 free and the 100 freestyle. And so there I made the emerging team. And what that means is like there's a bunch of different – I want to say a bunch, but there's different – tiers of teams you can be on in the Paralympics. And so at the time they had national A team, national B team and emerging team. And so they're all based on times. And with emerging team, it was like, if you made this time or faster, you're on the emerging team. So it kind of signifies, okay, like this athlete is getting faster. And then national B was when you start to get paid and your times got even faster and it's like, okay, this athlete is really worth looking into. And then like national A is like top of the top. They're most likely going to games, stuff like that. So when I was there, I made emerging team. I was like, okay, cool. I made a team. Well, I applied to the training center in December and they got back to me. I was accepted and literally flying out there within like three weeks. Like I dropped all of my classes for spring semester at UNF and just packed up and moved out to Colorado and began my training there. And ever since I've been there training pretty much 24 seven and traveling the world, competing for our country. How is the training center free? Who, who pays for this? That's actually a really good question. Training center is actually paid for by, I want to say, see if I, if I'm remembering correctly, I believe the train. Yeah. The training center is pay is an all nonprofit it is all funded by donations. However, in most countries, if I'm informed correctly, most of like their Olympic and Paralympic activities or like funds come from taxes. And, you know, I was talking with my friends. I was like, huh, that'd be really cool if we were funded by taxes. But, you know, like as soon as people see like tax, they're like, oh, well, we don't need it. Like, why, why do we have to fund the Olympics and Paralympics? So, but yeah, like that's, we're all funded uh, by donations and it's same with the Olympics as well. Like it's not just Paralympics. And I remember I wanted to touch on, you know, like the training center that we're at up until just recently, up until like last January, it was just called the Olympic training center, but now it's called the Olympic and Paralympic training center uh, in efforts to kind of like add more cohesion to the Olympics and Paralympics. Because like, I guess the, the Paralympic committee also knows that like, it's not very fair for the Paralympics to kind of have not as much coverage. And so a lot of people try to do as much as they can to spread the word about the Paralympics, because a lot of people argue they're like, Oh, well, Paralympic swimmers do just as much, if not more than Olympic swimmers because of their disability. But overall, yeah, like it's the Olympic and Paralympic training center. And so, uh, you know, like we have a cafeteria, we have state of the art weight room pool, everything you could really need. And like, like this is a place where, I mean, Michael Phelps has stayed, Nathan Adrian, Katie Ledecky. Like, I haven't met Michael Phelps, but like I've seen Nathan Adrian and Katie Ledecky like on the regular. Like I swam in the pool with them, but like it's kind of like almost normal now. Like you don't really you see like a lot of top athletes come through, but they're just they're they're kind of, they're just how do I word this? They're doing the same as you. You're doing the same as them. Like you're just training, trying to get better. So it's not like there's paparazzi's here. Like you kind of just nod and keep on going because we're all just 
we're all just busting our asses trying to get better. So, yeah. so the, the celebrity aspect wears off pretty quickly, right? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so you're training for the 2020 summer Paralympics. Yes, I am training for the 2020 summer Paralympics that will be taking place in Tokyo right after the Olympics. Man, you got to be excited about that. Oh yeah, I am. In fact, like my mom, she used to live in Japan when she was a kid for I think like six years, I want to say, something like that, um, because my grandfather used to work for General Motors, so they did a lot of traveling. So yeah, like she used to live in, Japan, used to live in Tokyo, so she's really excited to go there as well because uh, she's going to get to see places she hasn't seen in years. So yeah, it's, it's kind of cool because, you know, after, after games and everything, we're most likely going to stay there and go on a vacation. She's going to show me around Tokyo and where she grew up and everything. So. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Good. Well, I'll be, uh, well, I'll be watching for you then, uh, when that, <laughs> when that happens. Yeah, definitely. All right. I got a, just a few more questions. I, I, I know we've been going on here for a while and I want to be mindful of your time, but this is, I mean, this discussion, this whole thing is just fascinating to me. Do you have vision when you're dreaming? <laughs> no, kind of, kind of. Okay. So Part of the reason why I have my YouTube channel is because I like to address very popular questions like these. And so for me, it's complicated because it's like, well, do you see in your dreams? Well, how do blind people see? So I kind of have to explain it a little bit. What I see right now isn't just black. It's more like I see my mind's eye and all the colors that I used to remember. So like if I imagine something, I kind of see it in my mind's eye. And that's kind of how it feels when I dream, you know, I fall asleep and it, it's, I'm not actually seeing it, but my brain is, my brain feels like it's seeing something. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's, uh, well, that's kind of like the way a sighted person dreams too, yeah, right? It, I yeah, mean, we're not physically seeing something. It's just all in our mind. Yeah, essentially. And so that's kind of how it feels for me. What should sighted people know about when encountering a blind person? And I'll tell you what, what prompted this question is I, I watched, I watched one of your videos and one of the things you said is if you, you know, if you see a blind person and you think they might need help or whatever, don't go up and grab them. That seems like common sense to me. You would think, you would think. People actually do that though, huh? Yes. On a regular basis. And like, I'm, I'm a pretty big guy. So the fact that people do that to me, like I can only imagine how many how many like other people, other blind people smaller than me, like had that happen to them, but it happens. I don't want to say daily, but weekly for sure that people will try to grab you and try to tell you where to go and whatnot. Um, but as, yeah, like as far as, you know, like if there's a message I can send out, it's just that blind people are just normal people is that they just can't see. So it's just, you know, like if you were, in the, how would you feel if you woke up in the middle of the night in your house and you went down to get like a glass of water and then like something grabbed you, like, you know, it scared the crap out of you. And so it, you just want to extend the same kind of courtesies to a blind person. Like it's okay to walk up and ask them if they need help. And if they do just say, okay, how would you like me to lead you? Cause it's pretty standard to have a blind person just hold onto your elbow and then you walk and they'll kind of just pull them along, but some blind people are different. So it's always worth asking, Hey, how do you want me to lead you? That's a good question. That's, it's good to remember that. Yeah, definitely. And it's not as complicated as I may make it to be right now. Um, but you also don't want to like 
go just because you see a blind person go, oh, they need help. Because a lot of time they don't. And I'll be walking along doing my own thing, knowing exactly where I'm going. And then someone will come try to help me. And then I'll say, oh, no, no, thank you. And they'll be persistent. And then I'll say, no, thank you. And then I'll get disoriented because they distracted me. Well, guess what? Now I need their help. <laughs> but they, I already said, no, thank you. And they won't. You've off. already refused it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it makes things so much more complicated. <laughs> so, yeah, like if you see a blind person that, is looking confident. I mean, stop them if you want to have a conversation with them, but don't stop them if you want to try to help them if they don't need the help. All of it is basically basically like common courtesy with really interacting with anyone. Just, but yeah, the big thing, don't grab people is rude. (laughs) (laughs) Blind or sighted, really. What would you change about the world in general to make it better for blind people? You know, like, I say this a lot when people ask me this, but it's it's really true in that like 2019 right now is the time to be a blind person because before 2019, like each year before it has been harder and harder for blind people. Like back in, you know, the 1900s before all this kind of technology existed, like blind people used to have to carry around like 50 pound braille writers whenever they wanted to type something. Um, and same with paper. And so I literally have technology at my fingertips. So being me being blind is, has actually been very easy compared to most blind people in the past. So I'm grateful for that. But I mean, as a, like, as a philosophy minor, I'm just like, what's the, what's the point asking, what do I want to have better in the world? When, I mean, like what I have right now is great. Like I could say anything. I wish I had a million dollars or I wish that, everything was adapted for blind people. Everything's not adapted for blind people, but we're on, we're on the right track. So if, if I could have one thing, I would just say, speed it up. Like, let's keep the progress going. But like, like we've been really just America humans as a whole, like really all countries, not just America, but humans as a, as a whole have just been really progressive in the past 10, 10 years alone with blindness, especially disabilities as a whole you know i just feel like these days a lot more people are more aware of stuff like that you know yeah i love that answer yeah and actually one thing i'll add to that and it's a little bit of a tangent but when i recently went to peru uh to compete in a meet there and the meet was okay so the meet was called the uh pan american games so it's like a miniature olympic games so like we had a village built for us. We had a pool built for us. Like everything was built brand new for this event. So it was a pretty big meet. Well, when they built everything, they made sure that everything was accessible for all disabilities. So I have a video on my YouTube channel of like me touring the village, the Olympic village. But like basically there are, there are all wheelchair ramps. Everything was wheelchair accessible. But they also, I have, I've never seen this before, which is why I thought it was really cool. They had these yellow strips running everywhere like to the elevators to the cafeteria to all doors everything and it turns out that those yellow strips i can put my cane on them and they will guide me and make sure that i'm on like the middle of the path and not walking off the edge and like i don't get lost so it's like it's a way for someone to like trail for a blind person to trail their cane and uh get around easier how how does it how does the strip do that does it have a ridge in the middle yeah, it has like a couple of ridges where you just place your cane in it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, like stuff like that is really cool. And like 
if anything, more more inventions like that could be something that could really change the world for the better. Because I could see that being really useful in many situations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you could snap your fingers and get your sight back, would you do it? Um, it's, it's a tough question. It really is. Cause you know, everything I've, a lot of things that I've gotten in life, I've gotten through hard work. And so it was like, if I get my sight back, like I didn't really work for it. Or if I get my sight back, like, you know, but it's just, a, it's a very complicated question. Cause what if I end up regretting it? Or, you know, what if I, what if like me being blind is who I'm, who I really should be, you know? So it's really, it's really hard to say. And it's almost like that possibility is, is real already just because like of all the advancements they've had in technology. So that might be a real question you'll have to answer someday then. It may be. I would say like right now, I would say yes, just because like I've lived my life long enough blind to know what it's like to be blind so if i can get my sight back please like that'd be great <laughs> but at the same time i've gotten used enough to being blind to where it's like it's not like i'm miserable or anything it's not like i'm unhappy you know being sighted is just like it's just icing from there you know with all the technology that they have coming out uh people always send me links like oh have you seen this surgery have you seen this surgery but for me it's a bit more complicated because both of my nerves are severed you know it's not like it's something that happened from a disease and then my left eye, like it's not even there anymore. So are we talking, it gets complicated because it's like, are we talking about restoring, restoring my nerves? Because then I would only be able to see out of one eye or are you talking about replacing both eyes? Cause then I'd be able to see out of both. So. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I mean, I'm just, I'm picturing a sighted person. If, if they, in their mind suddenly became blind, would they, Immediately, if they could snap their fingers and get their sight back, the answer oh, wow. obviously is immediately oh, yeah. yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've got a you've got a whole different perspective on that. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, it's like it's either adapt or don't. You know, so humans are really good at adapting. Like we adapt to things every single day of our lives. It's just when you think of the more extreme, you're like, there's no way I could ever do that. When in fact, you can. What's your long-term plan? You mentioned you're a software engineering major. What are you thinking about for a career? Yeah, I've mentioned software engineering, and I've also mentioned we've talked about gaming a lot. Well, I kind of want to combine both of those, and I want to be able to, I want to be able to make video games accessible for people with disabilities, and that's that's already a movement that's going on right now. Like a lot of uh, companies are working on making like their video games accessible. So like. Microsoft is kind of leading that right now. And so I really want to like get a degree in software engineering and join Microsoft and like help with things like that, help with making their products uh, blind friendly or, you know, friendly with other disabilities. But then I also, I also, you know, kind of want to keep doing this, like keep sharing my story and kind of trying to inspire, motivate other people just because I mean, like I, everything that's going on these days people need some sort of motivation or hope. So it's like, <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Your story is so inspiring. I mean, there are people that make a living just going around and giving inspirational, motivational speeches. Yeah. It's like, ultimately I, I have my interests and I have what I want to do as a job, but ultimately I, I want to do as much as I can to put me in front of people as much as possible, just so I can like 
just just so I can help those people in the best way I can. Because I just feel like I feel like sometimes we all just need to kind of slow down a little bit. And I don't know if I'm able to just share my story or just share or just by doing what I do, if I'm able to inspire some people somehow, then it's, it's a cause worth taking for me. You're definitely doing that. Okay. Ross, one final question. Have you forgiven your father? Yeah, I, I would say I have, I feel like a lot of people assume that I take it personally, you know, that, that what my dad did to me was like, because he didn't like me or something or something like that. But like, I realized that he was most likely mentally ill. So like he could have been a good person if he had therapy, we don't know. It's like what Confucius said, holding on to a hot coal is like, you know, trying to burn the other person. So it, it, there's no point holding on to a grudge. And I say that, but I still, I still hold on to grudges. Like that's one of my flaws, you know, but you know, like the fact that I'm able to let go of a big one like that, it just, bear, it just weighs you down more than necessary. And it happened a long time ago too. It, yeah. It happened a long time ago. Like it's, oh man, like um, a little over 13 years, I think something like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you're, like you're, you're 21 now. Yeah, I'm 21. And so everything my dad did is okay. Like let's move on with life. But at the same time, like, Time heals wounds to an extent. And then to an extent, sometimes you just got to move on to an extent. I'm not saying like whatever traumatic thing you go through, just forget about it and you'll be all better. But yeah, like just time, time helps. It really does. Ross, I appreciate your time. It's just a, this is just an unbelievable story and very inspiring. And for this episode, the show notes will have links to everything we talked about here. You have a YouTube channel and you're also on Facebook and Instagram, other socials. Yeah, I have I have Twitter as well. I'm I'm basically on most social. Okay, so we'll we'll have links to all that as well as link to the if I can find it the investigation discovery show that you had mentioned, and of course the XMO speech that you gave, and your email address Ross A Minor at gmail.com. We will uh, link to all that if anyone wants to get in touch with you. It could be that. There's a blind person listening to this right now that yeah. says, hey, yeah. I would like to talk to Ross, see what he thinks about this, <laughs> or have a question or something. So once again, thanks for letting us in on your amazing story. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. My goal for each episode is to bring you people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you'd like to discuss this episode or previous episodes with other listeners, you can do that at our private Facebook group at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. I hope to see you in there. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And I'll see you in two weeks, where we'll once again be asking the question, what was that like?